because of the work that I do in the public space, I've started to look at value in a different way because it's not just about shareholder value, it's about societal value. And Recycling Lives has allowed me to bring those two things together. The more we can process our material, the more we can extract, the more value we can extract, the more we can invest in our people, the more prisons we can be working with, the more ex-offenders, more communities we can be in. ESG isn't just a passing fad, but it is actually a sustainable way of, of doing business. Hello everyone, welcome to the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Aylin. Before we start this week's episode, where we take a fascinating look at how businesses can drive social value with Recycling Lives Chair Andrew Hodgson, I have a quick Pep Talks announcement. Over the past three and a half years, Pep Talks has strived to enable CEOs and their businesses to thrive under PE ownership. And part of the way we've done this is by giving our members a platform to share their PE experiences, both good and bad, with other like-minded CEOs at our events. It's been a privilege for me and the Pep Talks team to be privy to these conversations and learn what it is that makes our membership so good at what they do. Key theme we've picked up on during these conversations is that a PE-back CEO is only as good as their management team. The days of the hero CEO are over, and unless leaders have a foundation of executives to work with, they will struggle to reach their potential. Because of this, Pep Talks has developed two new products, specifically designed to help management teams excel under PE ownership. First, which we launched last year, is the Pep Talks Excellence Programme. This takes a cohort of PE-backed executives through a leadership development course designed to upskill them in the art of PE leadership and value creation. And now, we're very excited to launch our third product, Pep Talks Executive Community. This brand new network will take all the best aspects of our CEO community and allow executives to meet in a safe environment to absorb tailored content and learn from the collective knowledge of other ambitious PE execs. This brings me on to the main reason for the update. On Thursday, the 4th of November, from 6 to 9 p.m., we are hosting our executive community launch event, which will bring together over 50 PE-backed executives for an evening of content and networking, including a panel on avoiding private equity leadership traps and a one-to-one interview with Alexander Man Solutions CEO, David Lee. If you're an executive interested in attending or a CEO who would like to extend this complimentary invitation to their team, then follow the link in the description of this podcast or email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. Now, on to the main event. For this episode, we are joined by Andrew Hodgson, formerly CEO of Subsea Engineering Business SMD. Andrew is now Executive Chairman of Recycling Lives, a recycling and waste management services provider who also deliver programs that reduce reoffending, tackle homelessness, and feed communities. Andrew discusses how building a business that is as focused on social value as it is EBITDA can improve your multiple, make you more attractive to your prospective buyers, help you build your culture, all while simultaneously smashing your ESG targets. Now, over to Sam and Andrew. Here we are in sunny Manchester, very sunny Manchester this afternoon. Always sunny in the north. <laughs> yeah, that's what people tell us, yeah. Uh, but very happy to be back in Manchester, because this is the first time we'd be back in Manchester since just February last year. So uh, as part of 19, 20 months, so it's really great to be back. Our first dinner back with the Manchester members for Pep Talks. And we're joined this afternoon by Andrew Hodgson, one of our... Uh, very first founding members in Pep Talk, so thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hey, great to see you again. I'll just introduce the listeners quickly to your background, and you can correct me wherever I go wrong, because we've never actually had this conversation about exactly where you started from, but you, you started out uh, BAE Systems, wasn't it? But you're somewhere else pr- prior to I BAE. I was in the steel industry. British Steel. British Steel, which was an interesting choice of place. Probably tells you a lot about me, because actually I came to university in Manchester, so my connection with Manchester started. And I was on the economics and accounting course, and I'm an economist by uh, graduation, which is also relevant to my career choice. But about 300 people on the course, I think 298 of them went to work for the big four accountants at the time. Yeah. And two of us went off to work in industry. And not only did I chose the steel industry on the basis that, well, first of all, four generations of my family before me were steel people. Um, but also because I just thought 
where better to learn about running businesses than a business that looks like it's perpetually on the edge of a crisis, <laughs> which was an interesting. So did you train as an accountant with them, did you? Yes, did you I, yeah, I'm a SEMA accountant. Um, and, and, and they put me through my MBA. You know, they had a, an exceptionally good management development program. Um, very tough to get on because they, they had a lot of people wanting to get on the program, but a handful of us each year were selected and sent to Warwick Business School. And, you know, that really opened my eyes to the world of management yeah. training. So, and then uh, you did BAE for quite a while, didn't you? I did BAE, yeah. I was on the on the military side. They were looking for people to kind of sort out their military business, military aerospace business. Um, and they actually recognised that people from the steel industry, there was quite a number of us went from the steel industry, had this ability to, to, to look at underperforming assets and get them turned around. So I was actually only on the military side for about two and a half years and then moved into commercial aerospace with Air, you know, it was Airbus UK yeah. at the time and then Airbus in, in, in Toulouse and that was kind of where my, my corporate career kind of peaked. Yeah, you go and live in Toulouse. Uh, I did, yeah, but I, I had a house in the UK. So you commuted? I commuted. We It was a very nice commute, actually, because I was <laughs> senior enough to um, for them to put a nice plane on to get me up and down to the south of France. And what did you do after that? Spirit Aerosystems? So, yeah, so um, I came back to the... This is where I started to get into the world of private equity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had to come back from Airbus for, for family reasons. My, I, for family reasons I was getting divorced I was quite open about that I had young children in the UK I wanted to be back in the UK with them so Mm. came back uh, BE Systems asked me to offload a underperforming loss making business that they had um, and that business became part of Spirit Aero Systems um, which I managed so I managed to do the the exit for BE to a private equity house but by that time met a raft of a large well-known private equity houses uh, we sold it to onyx of canada who yeah. asked me to join the team and you became finance and strategy director. i was kind of finance strategy director there but the challenge there for me was um that was never going to be a long-term a long-term gig because they were headquartered in the us and bearing in mind i come back to the uk yeah um, so i helped them integrate what was the european business but we had assets in in the far east as well so it's anything that was non-american mm. um we were the largest airframer for Airbus and Boeing. We did a stock market flotation on the New York Stock Exchange in 2006, uh, and it was super, super lucrative for the management equity holders, which I always say I only had 0.0001%, but when the numbers are as big as those numbers were, it was still my biggest paycheck to the time. I thought, I love this private equity world. <laughs> I, <laughs> I do some might just do some more of this. And then I, we, you, you went into SMD, didn't you, which was inflection-backed. Yeah. Um, which SMD was subsea um, robot, robots, Rob- vehicle yeah. manufacturing, engineering manufacturing. Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about that. You were in there for, from about 2008 to 15, weren't you? Yeah, well, actually, technically... To seventeen, so I'll tell you about that journey. It's quite a long journey. It was a long journey. It was a very long journey. So after I I decided to leave Spirit, and realizing that I now had a bit of a few options, I kind of set up my personal consulting business, Northern Value, and and you know Northern Value isn't just a a name that I picked out of thin air. You know, my my focus and my focus remains kind of on value, and I always talk value at three levels. You know, valuation, absolutely critical in everything. You know, at the end of the day, businesses need to be able to demonstrate that they create value. So I had this idea that I wanted to understand about valuation and help businesses understand where their true value was. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted them to understand where the value drivers were. So I'm, I'm really hot on KPIs and really focusing on those KPIs that drive real shareholder value as opposed to the myriad of other measures that people sometimes choose. And and lastly, values, the cultural piece, Mm -hmm. was a big area of interest. When I did my MBA, I kind of had done a whole heap of work around measures that weren't directly linkable to financial performance, but we know that they're good things. So I got really interested in in, in culture. And I kind of wrapped it with this Northern thing, because anybody who's listening could tell I'm a Northern guy. Uh, And I was fascinated by the culture of, the north and and 
and I, I felt there was something that North could kind of bring. So I, I thought I'll position myself here as somebody who will look at those value propositions. I didn't think it, they were being well represented in the North. I thought there was a gap for introducing private equity houses to assets in the North. That was really what I'd set out to do in 2008. Coincidentally, Inflection had bought SMD. And I think they bought, in their mind, an oil and gas asset. They'd done really well on a previous oil and gas asset. Um, And I think they thought they'd bought an oil and gas asset. And they were six months in in 2008. Now, 2008, for those of you who are old <laughs> enough to remember, wasn't a great year yeah. um, for, for, for businesses for a number of reasons. One is, um, you know, SMD builds quite large underwater robots, the world leader of building large underwater robots. But most of them were on asset back finance to the customer. So the, oh God. the asset back finance market collapsed Just, yeah. overnight. So the, the customers crunch. yeah, the customers couldn't afford to buy them themselves. So the credit crunch kind of stuffed the main way of, 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 of getting those products into the market. And the other thing is that the oil price had gone down from about $120 a barrel down to about $40 a barrel. Um, and this business was trading 80% of its revenues through the oil and gas market. Um, so, so by September of that year, they they acquired in the April. They were really looking, staring down the barrels of um, of something quite challenging. Now, he, I wish I'd had the hindsight of really the challenge that, that that business was was bringing to inflection because inflection it was their biggest deal. They were raising funds. Inflection are a well-established house now. But at that time, they were relatively small. They were relatively, they were still on the way up. This was an absolutely critical deal. And here they were holding an asset that was really in a difficult position. They, um, you know, it was clear that we were going to be close to breaching covenants um, from day one in a market where breaching covenants back in 2008 was just a no-no. You really didn't want to do that. The world's developed a lot since, since those days. So yeah, I got this this opportunity, but but this is your first CEO job as well. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, and I always say that you know, they were looking for an engineer from the northeast of England who was in the subsea market, and they got an accountant from the aerospace industry from the northwest of England. But other than that, <laughs> I was the perfect match. Um, but but equally, yeah, whilst I'd worked on large deals, and the other thing is it was a it was a forty million revenue business, and I'd been working on large businesses, so I wasn't kind of the obvious mm. guy, but Thankfully, I think they, they reflected back on what they needed and they recognised they needed to go through this strategic and cultural change, which yeah. is kind of where my strong points were. They had brilliant engineers. They didn't need another engineer. They really didn't need another engineer. They needed somebody who could get in, shape and focus that business, mm-hmm. but with an eye on getting the shareholder value back to where it needed to be and stay on the right side of the banks. But it took seven years. Um to do. I mean, you went through... So there was different phases in that, Sam, yeah. I mean, the first three years, so it took me a little bit of time to gain any credibility with the team. I was the outside guy. There was It was a management buyout, effectively, so the, the, the management team were all um, pre-existing. I spent a bit of time on the road. Um, it's an inter- international business, so I spent a lot of time talking to customers and came up with a, a strategy for the business, which was literally three main territories, kind of EMEA, the Far East and the Americas, all acted differently, as I could see, and three main product groupings. So I had a kind of a, if you imagine nine boxes, and I had a little mini strategy for each of those and put somebody in charge of them. And between 2009 and 2012, despite the challenges, we trebled the revenue of the business. Um, you know, and it was a huge. It was seen as a huge success story. Yeah. Um, but underlying that, the truth is, we only doubled, slightly more than doubled the EBITDA, um, and we felt that there was more EBITDA to go at. Um, and the reason was, I'd managed to get the strategy right, but I hadn't managed to take the management team fully on that journey. And there was still, there was still some kind of laggards in that in that story and I was still trying to get that bit right so I, th- I had a, a group of believers and then I had a group of people who just didn't want to see that change um, so you know it, when I, I kind of reflect back on that period I wish that I'd been more proactive with getting the management team mm. sorted to the point did that cultural 
connection with the new strategy happen in that last sort of three year period? Yeah, for the bulk of the team and, and, and the ones that didn't come, didn't come. You know, they, they you know, we found them a, a respectful but polite exit from the business. Yeah. Um, and then and, and in hindsight, I, I kind of wished I'd done that a little bit sooner. Yeah. So what, what what sort of state of mind were you in at the end of that then? Did you think, well, I'll go and do another CEO role? Because, I mean, I bought by a Chinese state trade buyer, I guess there wasn't really a job for Well, it's interesting. The Chi- well, you saying that. They, the Chinese buyer, the chairman, I mean, it, it, it kind of, I found this a little bit freaky because we were still only, a, you know, let's say it's a 100 million revenue business underlying and we were being bought by a 57 billion business, the world's largest railway equipment manufacturing business. And the chairman of that business wanted me to go to work with him to develop his entire strategy globally because he'd seen my background, knew my background, which was from the bigger, you know, bigger, and I got on really, really well with him. Um, and he was trying to encourage me to do that, but I just didn't want to go back into that space. I, I wanted to, I wanted to do that step over, I think, to, 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 portfolio I, a couple of things you know personal things 2016 not because of any stress related issues I have a hereditary issue I had a heart attack uh, realized I had to spend you know I've got a relatively young family for a, for a man of my age realized I had to spend a little bit more time there so decided to try and create a to create a portfolio I had got into this public work that I do as chairman of the local enterprise partnership for the northeast of England by then, so I was trying to deal with the leveling up agenda, which I'm very passionate about. So I thought, you know, I've, you know, I've done okay. I can survive. Yeah. I've not. You it's know, time to I'm, do something different. You know, I can I can do something different, and that's yeah. kind of what. Well, I, we say say different. Actually, you're sort of into um, into another one now, aren't you? But as as not the CEO, but as ex- exec chair. Um, and this is this business is called Recycling Lives. It's a fascinating business, private equity backed in 2018. Yeah. You were appointed, what, in 2019, 2020? 20, uh, end of 2019? Yeah. I was approached at the end of 2019. Uh, I was a board advisor whilst we restructured the business um, up until September of 2020. And my first official day was the 1st of October 2020. So it's quite recent history from that point of view, but it's been a long journey to get there. Yeah. Tell us about Recycling Lives. So Recycling Lives, there, are, there weren't many businesses that would have probably dragged me to this level of commitment, of, of commitment and, and input because I genuinely, I'd started to build quite a solid portfolio and some of that portfolios had to give way to enable Recycling Lives. So Recycling Lives, the way I describe it is the business or the organization, the family, I prefer to call it the family. The Recycling Lives family is there um, and our purpose is to create as much social value as economic value. So broadly, I like the social value report to be delivering more social value than the EBITDA. We do, we deliver social value in particularly three ways. We work with homeless or at risk of homeless, uh, mainly men. Um, but we do deal with, with with women as well. But we have our homeless accommodation, our ex-homeless accommodation. The bulk of what we do is preventing reoffending, prisoner reoffending. So we work in a significant amount of the prisoner academies. But what we're trying to do is take those people on a journey. They are the people that are at risk of homelessness. So that's the homelessness connection. You know, when a, when a an offender comes out, I think they get a grant of about seventy pounds. Um, so if you imagine, um, let's say somebody's been inside for 10 years, they've got no network. A lot of them have got exclusion orders. They can't go back to their, to where they, they, they're from. And then they're given 70 pounds to kind of make their way in the world. What we offer through our partner charity is the chance of a job and the chance of a house if they enter our program. It's a huge commitment, by the way, for the, for the people who are coming out of prison to our program, but you know, that's, that's what we, we offer them. Uh, and that's the bulk of our social value. And, and the other piece of social value we deliver, we run the fair share, which is food redistribution uh, for the Northwest of England. Um, so there was about three, three to three and a half million meals uh, delivered through our fair share program uh, last year. So, so overall, probably about 22 million pounds worth of social value. We think we're still finalizing those numbers um, generated last year. The business was started with that as its core defining purpose, 
but it was actually it is a fully commercial business. So so the business is a metal and waste what's called metal and waste recycling business, full circular economy business we prefer to call it. You scrap cars basically. Well, I know you do lots. We more do a lot more than that. For the so, listener to imagine it. So we are the largest scrapper of cars to use your phrase um processor of end of life vehicles if you want to give it the, uh, <laughs> the jazzy so, title the, the, the title so we do about one hundred and fifty thousand cars per year and uh, we we think we'll probably wow. be about double that by this time next year how many cars get scrapped in the uk every year so it's 1.4 million cars get scrapped every year so we're about 10 percent we'll we, we, we'll probably be 20 percent of the market is it massively fragmented that market is it? it's a hugely fragmented uh, I, I didn't realise, because I, I always thought of the scrapyard as being the guys at the end of your street who would kind of pick, not the end of your street, obviously, because you probably don't need, live near a scrapyard. But you, I you know, actually worked on a scrapyard. Everybody, <laughs> everybody has this vision of a scrapyard, which is the kind of the local guy, you go, you take your car down, you pay, you pay your money. Um, we actually get our cars fundamentally from two places. Uh, one is our uh, website. Um, so people go on, it's like the webuyanycar.com of... Of, of car scrappage so people put their car details in we'll give an instant price and we'll come and collect the car um, and because we have got because we know how much value we can drive out of that car we've got a really really great process in in, in extracting the maximum value we know what the price point is for that car we'll give you the best price so that accounts for about half the cars that we get and the other half of the cars that we get come from uh, police force confiscations um, which amazes me just how many cars. Well, some of them quite good, Nick. They can't be resold. Um, no, they we do resell. We do. Re- so we have a we have an auction site where we re- the ones that are resellable we we resell, um, and, and and we just take a cut from that. Yeah. But the ones that can't be resold or are damaged or you know a lot of these are illegal cars. Accident cars. Or yeah. So we we, yeah. we then. How much can you make out of a scrap vehicle then? Oh, that would be commercially sensitive, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's the interesting stuff. How much do you pay for a scrap car if I wanted to sell my? If you you probably look at about two hundred and fifty to two hundred and sixty quid for a car. It depends on the car. So let me give you some. I'll give you some ideas, right? Because um, so this is kind of how we make our money. The first thing we want to know is obviously the make and model of the car. Most cars have got a catalytic, catalytic converter on it. A catalytic converter trades at north of hundred pounds. Um, if you just sell it as a as a car into the market, which is what we do um, at present, um, obviously there's alloy wheels. So we take the alloy wheels off. They go back through through the fragmentizer, which is the shredding machine. So you're just you're you're sort of taking the alloy back to its base com- yeah. base sort of component or yeah, base yeah, yeah. state. Uh, an engine. Um, there's a huge market for engines, um, so we might get north of 500 pounds for an engine depending on the engine so depending in the upon the car in the international market though would you selling them here in the UK we sell them internationally we don't sell in the UK market yeah. so our engines and other parts they end up in Eastern Europe Dubai Africa Turkey yeah. so we've got a market for that um, what's left in the car is then shredded through a very expensive piece of kit called fragmentizer um, and that forms a kind of a, a, frag, a shreddy material, which we then apply science to. And this is where the science really comes into it. So um, it's a bit like doing A-level physics. And A-level, well, I've got to say, actually, probably GCSE. I've got, it's probably GCSE physics and chemistry, this, um, because we pass it across magnets. So we extract the ferrous. Mm-hmm. We then um, we then have a way of magnetising um, other materials, so that enables us to extract the uh, aluminium. Um, we can then spin it round in like a centrifuge to extract other materials. We can then use flotation tanks to separate other materials because at the end, what we want is 100% of that material put into very, very well sorted piles. All of our material goes overseas. Um, China, India, Pakistan, very big buyers of... of, of and it just goes back into the manufacturing supply chain. And it goes back chain. into the manufacturing supply chain. So, I mean, clearly we think there's an opportunity for the UK to do more mm. manufacturing of those metals, um, materials. Yeah, why, why, doesn't, why don't UK buyers Well, buy uh, some it? of them do, but if you kind of follow the press, if you look at where, particularly the electric arc furnace, so a lot of this material will go into an electric arc furnace, and the electric arc furnaces in the UK... 
you know, people like Liberty Steel who, mm. who have had loads of challenges. So yeah. we we just find it easier um, to, and, and we find it actually more commercially viable to, uh, to to put it into boxes and send it to to China. Frankly, um, how does it get to China? Well, the <laughs> this is the another little. Interesting thing, every time we buy something from China on a container ship, a container comes across, that container's got to get back to China, um, obviously to get the next load of whatever is going to be in there. So what we do is we reroute those containers. We just top those containers with very high valuable material, close it on, then send them back on the container ships because they're going to go back in any case. So the return costs of transport are very low to us and they get very high grade material back into China and they'll love our material because it's very well sorted. Yeah. I, so, I wouldn't put this in the podcast, but not very green though, is it? We would prefer to do it in the UK. I mean, ships are like the biggest, well, they're this, aren't they the second greatest polluters in they, terms of transport are. distribution behind flights? But probably No, not. they are. So that's why we're encouraging the UK government to do more electric yeah, it should, should be here. It, it should be here. It, it's, it's actually, I mean, I've got no problem if you put this in the podcast, by the way, because <laughs> we absolutely believe in this. We want to become a zero carbon business yeah. and shipping you know, so we, we are what we call a scope three. We are interested in scope three, not just scope one and two, where, where people talk about net zero. Uh, and shipping is, is, is going to be the biggest challenge that we've got. But get this, the UK imports about 13 to 14 million tonnes worth of manufactured steel product. And we export about 10 or 11 million tonnes of scrap steel. I mean, it's just no way, just insane. If you wanted to really, I mean, what get the hell's to, going on? You know, so so these are the things that you know, you know, we talk about ESG, yeah. and we're trying to position this business as a prime ESG asset. And these are the absolute things that we're working through now. Mm. So, you know, we're wanting to find ways of supplying more material into the UK arc furnaces. We're wanting to encourage. The UK government to be behind mm -hmm. you know if you think about all of the infrastructure investment that's going to go in the UK you know the rail manufacturing you know the the steel that's going to go into the bridges mm -hmm. you know the, the steel that goes into kind of, and there's plenty of vehicle manufacturers here why there's can't, huge why can't vehicle they? manufacturing here yeah. uh, and we haven't even started to talk about the circular economy and batteries which we're also into and the rare earths that are de dealing with that because again once we've got the rare earths in the UK, why not recycle those back into gigafactories, which is something else that we, yeah. we're, we're, we're working with the, the, the battery So you're lobbying on. government for this. So we're lobbying government. So maybe there's a bit more understanding why a man like me, who's got a lot of contacts in government, yeah. is actually well positioned. I think the recycling industry, the scrap industry, as you quite rightly mm -hmm. refer to it, hasn't had a great reputation, hasn't the industry, I guess the industry hasn't really got its act together to really demonstrate why it's absolutely critical in helping the government achieve its net zero target. But this business is brilliant. Not only is it doing something commercially that to generate commercial value, but it's also uh, a social enterprise that is really connected to its community and helping people find their way back into a healthier way of life. Absolutely. And those two things are... Uh, intrinsically linked in the business yeah. you know they, they, that's hence why I say we have to we have to do an equal amount of both and, and measuring both I, I talked earlier about value because of the work that I do in the public space I've started to look at value in a different way because it's not just about shareholder value it's about societal value mm. um, and, and obviously I've when you're doing economic development you've got to think about societal value and recycling lives has allowed me to bring those two things together and we genuinely believe by doing the right things um, that good comes to us. Um, you know, we're, we're not a charity. We're fully commercial. We don't, we don't get any grants. Yeah, from you the are private equity back. Yeah, we're private that. equity back. I mean, so you can't, three hills balls into it. You know, there's a, the, yeah, you can't get more commercial penny than the private yeah. equity world. And, and we're doing that for good reasons. We believe that sustainable capital does give us an advantage, by the way, in terms of, of cost of capital. We think that there are more sustainable capital funds chasing kind of very few good assets, and we, we think we're an exceptional asset. So that will reduce our cost of capital, which will enable us to reinvest more in the business because there is a capital intensity to our business. You know, we, The more we can process our material, the more we can extract, the more value we can extract, 
the more we can invest in our people, mm. the more prisons we can be working with, the more mm. ex-offenders, more communities we can be in. You know, it's, it's How many ex-offenders do you work with a year? It's probably... Come through your programmes, you know. Yeah, it's probably in the... It's, it's certainly in, in, in the hundreds, you know, we've done thousands over time, but it's, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're in the hundreds. The last year has been very difficult because prisons have been in lockdown. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so when people say, they, they'll say our, you know, our head office is unique. So I have a community cafe on the ground floor, and then the first floor is all prisoner ex-offender accommodation. These people transferring out of prison. And we've got 10 bedrooms there, but that isn't our rehoming thing. That's for the 10 probably most challenging cases that we have. Um, you know, the re, re, rehoming generally takes place into, into the private landlord space. You uh, help them do that. But we have, yeah, well, the, the charity, you know, yeah. the, the business and the charity are separate, yeah. are legally separate entities. Um, we fully support the, the, the charity. I have a weekly, myself and Jerry, my CEO, have a weekly meeting with the chairman of the CEO of the charity to make sure we're absolutely 100% aligned. That's why I talk about family. Mm. You know, because everybody said, well, how does this really work? So we'll think of it as a family. You've got two parents, a common set of values, a common set of purpose, the same name, but actually are independent entities. Mm. It can work like mm. that. One's maybe a little bit more economically driven and the other's maybe a little bit more paternalistic. Does a proportion of, of EBITDA from Recycling Lives business go to Recycling Lives charity? Yeah, so, fund the charity. Yeah, so so funding the charity is funded in, I guess, three ways. Um, effectively, you know, all all supported by the business. So, so the first way is we we're also a very large waste electrical um, recycler. Uh, we have the largest compliance scheme in the UK, um, and which are effectively flat screen TVs have to be recycled by by law. Uh, we send those into into prisons. We pay the charity the commercial rate for doing that work. Obviously, the cost of doing things in prisons is less than commercial. Uh, they actually, to be fair to the charity, they pay the highest prison wage of anybody. Um, they've got a special arrangement with the Ministry of Justice to do this, but immediately deduct a third of that wage and put it into a savings account so that when people leave prison, They've got more than the seventy pounds. They've got hundreds of pounds, so they can put a deposit on a house. They can put a deposit on a mobile phone. The things that you and I just don't have to think about. So, so they they get funding that. That's their biggest funding stream. The second thing is the, the direct support we give them. So, they, the charities in, in our head office. So they they don't pay, they, they pay peppercorn rent. Um, the accommodation that they provide is is effectively done on a peppercorn rent. Um, there are some drug, mental health, you know, we're dealing with vulnerable people, so we directly fund some of their staff, uh, just pay for, for those staff. And then, um, and the third way is then just direct. So it's just money that's straight off our bottom line, straight into the charity. Mm. Um, but it's a really important thing to do. And I have never had a problem with the private equity invested on what we what we fund. In fact, if anything, they're always on my case to do more um, mm. rather than less. And when we do acquisitions, it's the first thing that gets asked is how does this impact on the social side? So I can sort of understand why you wanted to do this, why why you would commit to something like this, considering how how you sort of described yourself earlier in terms of the three things you look for. Yeah. Um, but how having sort of been embedded in the business now um, for a year, I mean, how how do you see um, this social enterprise um, driving value creation in this business because ESG is obviously uh, is, is something that we talk about within Pep Talks. Um, we have an influential member yeah. in Karen James who runs ERM, who was on a previous podcast. If you want to listen to that one about ESG, um, and it's a great podcast. And it, you know this this is this is something uh, that. Um, all CEOs and anyone running a business should now be putting right at the top of their agendas. And as I'm, I'm stealing Karen's uh, words here, not just for value creation, but value erosion. Yeah. If you're not if you're not running your business according to some sort of ESG um, um, 
policy or idea, then you're potentially getting yourself into a value erosive situation. But how, how are you seeing what recycling lives have always done and, and continue to do as, as creating value for your private equity partners? Well, first of all, I've got to say we were very, or I am very fortunate because this was not my idea. There was a guy called Steve Jackson who had yeah. this brilliant idea that he would set up a social enterprise but with good commercial foundations. So it's absolutely at the core of, of, of what we do as a business. And I actually think ESG is quite challenging for a lot of businesses because most businesses need to start from that 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 fundamental. So it's mm. it's either an add-on or a, or something that you kind of culturally doing. But where where do we, I mean we see value in a lot of places? So let, first of all, we are very very clearly an ESG business because we are e we recycle. We're a circular economy business, so we are e whether you know we we're just not operating in a different space. But even on that, as we talked before, you've got to think just beyond the obvious. So how, you know, we've, we've got 150 something trucks running around. We ship our material to China. We, there is still a little bit of res residual waste at the end of our waste processes. How do we eliminate those from our processes? So even though we're an e-business, we're thinking all the time, how do we improve on e? How do we really Are you committed that? to net zero? Is that we are. We haven't made a formal commitment to that. But you're trying. Um, to work we, we're just working on our absolute plans because when we commit, yeah. we want to commit big and we want to and commit hard and do it. Yeah. Um. That, I'll I'll come back onto that. And on that's the, a on the difficult thing to do. And it's it? a hugely difficult yeah. thing to do. But we're very very proud of our ability to, to deliver. So that's that side. The social side. I've talked about how we how we create. You know, we're doing huge amounts of social, and we are probably unique in terms of businesses in the amount of social we do. You know the breadth and how we really push ourselves on that social side. You know, I always describe. I know a lot of um, social enterprises and charities that do a bit of commercial work, and I know a lot of businesses that do quite a lot of social work. But I've never met a business that really has that balance of fifty-fifty, um, and that that makes it unique and challenging. And we challenge ourselves in: is is that right for us? You know, what's the right level of social that a business like us should be doing? You know, so because at the end of the day, it's got to commercially work. Uh, you know, we've got to make money to be able to reinvest in the programmes and to make some money for the investors. You know, we've got to demonstrate the investors to gain return. The most interesting part for me is the G part, because I think at the moment in, in the world of ESG, working out which businesses are creating the right level of environmental benefit, the right level of social benefit, the right level of societal benefit, is a, it's still an emerging theme. And we're still trying to find out a way of authenticating what we do. I mean, you, you understand the business, you see the business, and everybody sees the business gets super excited about it. But who audits that? You know, people audit our financials, but we can claim to be, you know, there's, there, there are various ways of trying to describe it, but there's a lot of these trends like B Corps and that, they're, they're really emerging emerging trends. Nobody's really nailed that. So, so, so the governance part's quite interesting for us. But... If you kind of strip all of that back, why does it work? Well, first of all, there's a business advantage to doing this. So if you just look at the, and this can, this isn't the same for every business, but if every business really looks hard, it would understand that there are elements they can copy from this. As I say, we're the largest um, scrapper of cars in the UK. Um, half of those come from police forces. When the police forces, they, they place contracts with large recyclers. We have to commercially win those contracts, but I can tell you every police force in the country is going to put us on the bid list because we are going to be in their communities actually working absolutely 100% on the thing that they're trying to do, which is to reduce crime. Mm -hmm. so, so that brings advantage. I said with the largest waste electrical compliance scheme, that means we have to collect a lot of flat screen TVs if you go down to your local recycling centre, there's a reason that flat screen TVs go into a separate box because yep. we own those boxes because those boxes need to come back to us to recycle. Um, so which council isn't going to want to at least give us a chance of winning that work because they know we're going to be in their community. So there is a commercial advantage to that as well as obviously people like the construction business. If we do, you know, we haven't talked about it here, but we do cardboards and plastics. So we do cardboards for some of the very large, well-known retail businesses who are looking at ways of satisfying their ES, 
ESG, but haven't got the mechanisms themselves. So they can work with us, we can give them that ESG piece, but we actually get hold of the cardboard, which is really fundamentally commercially important to us. So we can recycle our cardboard and we can kind of get that, get that waste stream going. So, so there's a hard EBITDA-driven piece. So that's, that's point one, you know, that, absolutely. But the piece that I don't think people necessarily think about initially is what it does to the cost of capital. You know, you and I will have pension funds. We've got much better choice of what we do, you know, or other investments. People are looking for more sustainable ways. You know, I think the, there's a lot of money flowing towards sustainable funds for good reason, because society wants, you know, if you've given a choice of making a return and doing good with it or not doing good with it, and you can get the same return, you're going to go to the, the doing good. Everybody's going to do that. So there's going to be some kind of arbitrage. And what that's created is more money chasing less assets that can genuinely show that they're creating true social value. And that drives down the cost of capital. So, And it drives down the cost of capital because it's more sustainable. Because if you're aligned to society, your business is likely to be there for 20, 30, 40 years. You know, we're not a fashion brand that, mm. you know, that's just trying to maximize profit for today because our customer for today might not be there tomorrow. Our mm. customer for today is going to get older. We're not like that. We're trying to drive long-term secure returns. And so sustainable funds aren't stupid. They see that and we're aligned to society. And that drives down the cost of capital, which means rather than generating a seven or eight times return, which might be typical in the industrial space, you know, we probably think that we should be doing a 12, 13 times multiple on a business like ours. Mm. And as we acquire businesses, we build them into the portfolio. You can see how we can leverage that, that yeah. value up. Yeah. So ESG, you, of course, it's a great thing to do. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about doing the right thing for people, but it's wholly commercial. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's an economic and financial case behind absolutely everything that we do. And we don't think about it first because we mm. you can't do that when you've got some poor individual who's having a really bad time because mm. they've come out of prison and something's been put out on social media and you've got to find something, you know. We have to deal with those real day-to-day issues. We don't stop and think, what's the financial sector thinking to do it? We help the person, we do the right thing for the person. But by doing that over and over and over again and having the systems processes to do it, it's having a real financial impact on our business and the growth of Recycling Lives has been huge. You know, it was a business that set out on this social path in 2008, probably really started to establish itself in 2010 and the last 10 years, you know, it's had, it's had, it's, it's had growth pains like a lot of businesses, mm-hmm. but we just see this just position growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. You haven't talked about the impact on people and culture. I mean, you know, it must it must create a, a sense of uh, common purpose and yeah, so reason our, for being. I mean, and then and then you've also got the headcount issue that everybody else is struggling with at the moment. Uh, you know, finding talent. Well, you're training and developing your own talent. Absolutely. And- so yes, yeah, so our our lower, lower skilled occupations. You know, we, we 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 aim for about. We don't achieve this, by the way. We we aim for about fifty percent coming through the ex offender program. But that's obviously largely going to be at the at the lower end. That isn't to say it's exclusive. I have senior managers, um, actually, I've senior managers on pep talk programs who have actually come through our our uh, ex offender programs. So you know we have senior managers who are in that space. That's brilliant. Um, but obviously, the vast majority of people who are first move out. In fact, I, I've got no problem with fetching somebody out, training them, getting them forklift, getting them forklift truck uh, driver training, getting them to understand a warehouse and then letting Amazon come and take them. Mm. You know, I am proud of that because we've done the hard yards of doing that first step of making sure that they're employable. But you're absolutely right. The, beyond that group who are obviously hugely, hugely passionate because we're giving them a chance. These are people who have typically never been given a chance. So they will do anything. They, Mm. They really are super passionate about us. Um, and our biggest advocates, but our management team, and you know our management team well because we do do the pep talks. The excellence program, yeah, uh, yeah, exec program. So, so, um, and you've seen them in action. These are, uh, these are bright. Yeah, they're young. Young, degree qualified, mm. um, 
you know, we people who've transferred from other organisations, not because they weren't working out in those organisations, we're taking people from management development programmes. In fact, I've had a call today from someone, uh, she's been with, I won't say who, um, but she's been with a large financial institution for four years, but reaching out to one to come and work for us. And is prepared to volunteer actually to start with because she has a passion about preventing reoffending. Um, so we get that kind of drive and, and, and passion and we empower people mm. to be able to do that because there's no point in bringing people in and then not letting them mm. actually express, express that. Mm. Um, you know, if you come into our organisations, you would not be able to tell the difference between those who've come from the no. offender programme. I would have no idea. No. And, and there are sometimes there are reasons for that because... Mm. Some of the, you know, we, we're not talking, you know, I think people think sometimes they go, oh, yeah, but you're talking low-level criminality here. Yeah. Um, you know, I always said there's only two, two, two types of criminal that we don't deal with, for, both for good reason. One is a sex offender, not because we don't want to work with sex offenders, but just we are not technically qualified with that type of crime. And, and our insurance company won't let us work with arsonists. So if you scrub that out, we have... I would probably say we have got absolutely everything in there, mm. um, including, you know, some that are, you know, that, that are, are kind of known cases, mm. and clearly we have to keep those identities very, you know, very, very, yeah. very, very much under wraps. But as as I say, you come onto a, a recycling life site, you would not be able to tell. Yeah. If you look around the management team, you wouldn't be able to tell. Yeah, uh, I think the future is really exciting. It's a brilliant business and. It is, uh, you and Jerry are doing an amazing job and the team are doing an amazing job, but you've also got to really give credit to Steve Jackson, the founder who had the foresight to create a business like this. I mean, he just was nowhere close to it, was he? He sort of made some money in technology and yeah. the internet and, you know, this is this is the path that he went on, which is which is incredible. No, it's incredible. I mean, he's obviously been well-recognised for, for the work that he did, Um but, you know, uh, I know there's this thing about standing on the shoulders of giants, but mm -hmm. in 2008, when he decided to go down this path, nobody was talking about ESG. No. You know, nobody <laughs> is... Kind is of, it even out there? You know, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that Steve hadn't thought of, you know, I think Steve's words were, well, if I do good, then some people might do good to me. Yeah. Um, you know, but it was a significant significant investment he made in the social enterprise at the start you know you've seen our main building that was a big investment to start yeah. with for what was a relatively small business on what seemed like a kind of you know it's almost a, a whim or something you know I'm quite sure how Steve got to that thinking and Steve's completely out of the business now but I would always recognize that you know it, he he's a true entrepreneur in the case that everybody describes he has kind of 10 bad ideas and one good idea um, but this was beyond a good idea this was fantastic and then the work that the team did to to then take that on again mm -hmm. um, you know we, we fully recognize that but what it's allowing us to do is you know we use it as a you know it's, for, for, for me it's a way to demonstrate to the world what you know what benchmark is yeah I don't expect people to achieve that not because we're super special but just because of where we came yeah. from on our journey yeah but it demonstrates the level of thinking that you can undertake and the benefit that you can get from that and that esg isn't just a passive fad but it is actually a sustainable way of of doing business real business well look, andrew that's been really fascinating thanks for talking to us um, a pleasure, Sam. We better go have some dinner now, haven't we? Yeah, we've got I to do. I'm going to repeat this all over dinner. <laughs> aren't I? I think our, our, our guests will be arriving, so we're going to have a drink. Fantastic, thank you. So, uh, thanks to Andrew. What an interesting conversation that was, Sam. What thoughts did that leave you with? Uh, lots of thoughts, really. But for me, as uh, yeah, I guess as a, as a business owner, um, somebody who's, who's running a, a business, albeit a really small business, it makes me think about what we can do. Um, and that's that's really, I think, the message that Andrew's 
um, overriding message that Andrew's trying to get across is just people should start thinking about this and thinking about it not just because it's the right thing to do but also because uh, it, it, it will make you think about how to run your business more effectively and it will open up financing, better financing opportunities and probably create lots of value along the way. So yeah, it made me think about what we can do. And as a really small business, I, I think there are some, even as a really small business, there are things that we can do. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially when it comes to social, uh, you know, I think there's, we have a real opportunity to be a gateway for young disadvantaged people into private equity-backed businesses. And if we can try and, you know, we're talking about this as a team and we're talking about this with our community of just trying to find a way of tapping into young people from difficult backgrounds who are really ambitious and want to learn and, and grow and provide them with an opportunity into into fast growth private equity-backed businesses. And I think, you know, um, that would be amazing if we could achieve that and it, we'd be contributing something towards social mobility in this in in this environment which would be which would be an incredible thing to try and do and we're, we're looking at that so that was one thing and in terms of the environment it's, it's, it's difficult as a small team I don't think our energy consumption is huge okay. I cycle it to work most mornings so. <laughs> yeah um, so I think that one's a tough one but I think that I mean there's something we could probably do around the dinners uh, to, to make them more environmentally conscious um, our events um, and probably energy consumption as we, as we move forward and grow so it really it really he really got me thinking about just the small steps that we could take mm -hmm. yeah I totally you? agree I mean I, I think the thing that really impressed me about Andrew is um, he's he's working on this ESG process just because it's the right thing to do not obviously there is these business advantages to it but that's not necessarily why he's doing it. He's doing it because it's the right thing, and in turn, he's sort of benefiting from it in that in that way. Um, and yeah, like you say, I know we're a small team, so it's difficult to uh, say what we can do about it right now. But I think an overriding theme when we talk to our members about ESG is the earlier you start, the better. Uh, the whole social piece. I mean, a big part of the reason I love working for Pep Talk so much is that idea of if we can send CEOs or execs away with an idea on how to improve the business, how to create growth and in turn create more jobs. I mean that, like, that's hugely, hugely important to social mobility isn't it, especially when you get down to those entry level positions and the more pep talks can do to, to improve that the better. Yeah, so hopefully um, he's made our listeners think about what they can do as well. Absolutely.